Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about biblical peacemaking, and then we're joined by Pastor Derek Puckett. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you are with us today. If you want to find out more about us or the show, you can go to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Common Good Talk. Plus, the show is podcasted at the end of every day around 6.15, 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're the podcasting type, subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that helps us out a whole bunch. And we know plenty of you already have done that, and we are so grateful for each and every one of you. Brian, before... We get into this article from Christianity Today. How the heck are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, man. It's been a, it's been a good day, uh, especially I took yesterday off from work because it was Martin Luther King Day to hang out with the kids and stuff. And so always that first day back from a long weekend, you're like, I don't even know where to start. But it's been a good day. How about yourself? How's your day going today? <laughs> That's all it takes is a weekend. You're like, I don't know what my Oh, don't you feel like, like you're like... I have like 18 things to do at this moment. I, I must pick one to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel you, man. I totally get yeah. that. Yeah, it yep. was good. It was, uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a wild, a wild weekend. I'm saying that a little tongue in cheek because we didn't, we didn't do much at all. But uh, yeah, yesterday, yesterday was, was somber for me for a, a number of different reasons. I, I mean, the guests that we had on yesterday were just fantastic. If you missed yesterday's show. Highly recommend you check out the podcast, but I, I felt like I spent the rest of the evening kind of ruminating on some of what they were mm-hmm. saying and some of their words mm-hmm. and just, yeah, feeling so blessed that, I mean, these are, these are like people that are leading right here in our own city too. So I, I just felt really grateful for them and them giving of their time and the insight and wisdom that they at the very least spoken in my life. And I hope that it was encouraging for all of you. A topic, yes. Brian, that we tackled a, a number of times for a number of different reasons this last year, to be honest. And uh, I thought that this article at Christianity Today from Justin Gaboni was fantastic. It says, only biblical peacemaking resolves racial and political injustice. No other group is better situated to bring healing to this land than the church. What's going on here? Yeah, Justin Gaboni, president of the AND campaign, uh, and amongst other things. And this is such an important article because as people have this conversation about uh, you know, racial reconciliation or the political divisiveness right now and the role that the church is playing or can play. Gaboni here is making a big statement to say uh, that the church, amongst everything else, has an opportunity uh, or a responsibility towards peacemaking. So I want to do something we don't normally do. I just want to read the end of it, the last three paragraphs, because there's so much good stuff in there that in here that we could get lost. But uh, Gaboni concludes this way. He says, Christians can't be peacemakers in this polarized age by committing sins of omission. We must unify around the authority of Scripture, which compels us to make peace by dismantling uh, iniquity uh, and treating each other with dignity. We can be bold and passionate when we pursue justice, and we won't all express ourselves the same way. However, we can't be vengeful or resigned to permanently separating ourselves from other believers, no matter who they voted for. Unfortunately, he says, not everyone will have the will or fortitude to endure the sacrifices that come with peacemaking. The unwilling, those more worried about race theories and actual racism, can no longer be allowed to hamper the process. Placating Christians who have no intention of earnestly addressing race or who are too prideful to be corrected is a dead end. Similarly, 
Those who embrace secular theories on race without a solid biblical critique will also stunt peacemaking. In our pain, some of us have run from orthodoxy into the arms of secular prescriptions. Those voices cannot lead this journey towards renewal. Peacemakers must combine orthodoxy and orthopraxy, biblical conviction and social action. No other group is better situated to bring healing to this land than the church. There are Bible believing Christians on both sides of the political spectrum and outside of politics. We have a lot in common. We're stuck with one another for good. We need each other. It's time to set our partisan hangups aside, make peace and do justice. That's again, Justin Gaboni, attorney, strategist, president of the Ann campaign. And Ian, I guess I would start by just asking, do you agree with him that no other group is better situated to bring healing to this land than the church? I mean, I, I don't think I would be a pastor if I didn't believe that, to be honest. I, I I don't know that I could ever in a million years articulate it as well as he does. If you're not following right. him on Twitter, by the way, I know that's not typically where people go for like well-articulated prose, but it is, I mean, he is, <laughs> he is, can do it. he's regularly putting things out that I think are thought-provoking, but also like winsome and have, I mean, there's a reason that they call it the and campaign. There's a, there's an opportunity to be both convicted regardless of your side, but also maybe be comforted or given hope regardless of your side. And I think that mm -hmm. some of some of their hope with this organization is to like, okay, we can't we can't always be we might not actually be as divided as we always seem to feel, especially if you're just, you know, basing all that on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. But I, I, I thought this paragraph here in the middle for me was where he really, really packs the punch. He says, some assume peacemaking requires inactivity or silence in the face of disorder and injustice. But true peace is not passive quiet or the absence of action or the silence of indifference. Biblical peace is shalom, meaning completeness, well-being, and right relationship with God and each other. Silence or inaction amid grave partiality and inequality is not peace. When we mute the poor, or rob the victim of voice, we deny peace. Gaslighting or shushing the suffering perverts, uh, perverts the wholeness and fulfillment Christianity demands. And I, I've heard other people speak to this, but I, I think something about how he put it there actually rings a little bit of, I think, a, a King quote we read yesterday, where he's like, man, if, if peace means being quiet in the face of injustice, I don't want it. Yeah. But yeah, there's something, there's something to that. And again, everyone seems to think that they have the right path to peace. And I think what Gaboni is saying here, but like, man, apart from the church, we we might be able to make some strides in the right direction, but it's not really going to bring shalom. You know, and I think that mm -hmm. needs that needs to be ultimately our, our goal. Yeah. Interestingly, you and I've been doing this show long enough that that was the next uh, paragraph I'd marked to read. So <laughs> we just kind of go with each other there. I love that uh, that line that peacemaking requires some assume peacemaking requires inactivity or silence. Uh, but true peace is not passive quiet. Because I think sometimes the inactivity or the silence comes from fear. Right. Ah, uh, we'll, we'll call it peace, but I just don't want to rock the boat. I just don't want other people upset. I, I want to avoid the hard conversations. And so sometimes it's out of fear, but other times people just assume peacemaking equals uh, not dealing with the things we're mad about. Right. Like not rocking the boat and that that's actually a positive step. And so for him to say, no, that's not what it is. But true peace instead is not passive quiet or the absence of action. But like you said, shalom, 
meaning right relationship with each other and God, completeness, well-being. But sometimes, not even sometimes, often it's going to be through those really hard conversations that we don't really like or a lot of us don't like to have that we get to the spot of peace or shalom, as he's saying. It's not in the ignoring of the hard conversations uh, in the name of peace and unity, because then it still festers and it's still there. But actually doing the hard work of having these conversations is what brings about peace. And, and I don't think a lot of us get that. A lot of times it's like, well, if there's yelling, if there's if there's tension, then something must be wrong. And, and he's making the point like, no, no, that is what we've got to work through. We got to have these hard conversations. And it's not about silence. And it's not about just pretending that everything's okay. But having these hard conversations is going to lead us to that place we need to get to. Well, I think it actually is sometimes about silence. I think that's a necessary component for all of this, what, what he says here is not passive quiet. I think that's an important qualifier. I think I think we need to be active contemplatives and contemplative activists. I think it's a I think it's a both hand. So there there certainly is a danger to always running right to action and to words. Mm-hmm. I think I think quiet and stillness plays a big role in this as well. But it it can't be or shouldn't just be one or the other. And I think the point that he's making here is that man, the, the church ultimately, if we want to bring shalom, mm-hmm. the healing of the world, the rightness to which God originally dreamt the world to live in. I mean, that's our role. That's what, I mean, we, I've heard pastors for decades now say the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's an important thing for us to, to grapple with now more than ever, to be honest. Well, coming up next, our guest is pastor Derek Puckett, lead pastor of Renewal Church of Chicago. We're going to reflect on yesterday and then talk a little bit about a way forward that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm, and we're thrilled to have on the show for two segments pastor Derek puckett lead pastor of renewal church of chicago welcome to the show sir Thank you. It's great to be with you all once again. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. Would you just take a, a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Definitely. My name is Derek Puckett. I am the lead pastor of Renewal Church of Chicago. We planted our church, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church in Chicago, Illinois, as well as had the privilege of serving as the uh, president and chair of the uh, Chicago Partnership, where we plant churches, do benevolence ministry here in the city. and and train up leaders to uh, reach our city in every neighborhood. I love it. That's great to have you back on, Derek. Uh, yesterday, we had a bunch of pastors on to talk about uh, the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, and you were on and did such a great job, and then you got bit by the old thing we call technical difficulties. <laughs> and so I bring that up to say I would still love for you to answer that question, even though we're a day later on here, because you did it so well yesterday, uh, that I would love for people to hear not only what do you see as the influence of Dr. King uh, culturally, but more so, what was his influence in your own life? Well, obviously, we've you see many of the influences in culture, and you heard a lot from uh, many of my brothers yesterday and folks that were on. Um, I think for myself, I, I grew up uh, around whether it be my mother or my father um, or even my uncle. He had a printing company where he would uh, print historical uh, information of, around different African American figures in society here and even in Africa. Hmm. Um, from so pretty early on in my life, I was introduced to not only civil rights movement uh, leaders, but folks that were kings and queens, uh, people that we don't write about or even hear in our classrooms. So when I think of Martin Luther King and his 
the impact he's had on my life. Uh, I pastor a multi-ethnic church, a multicultural church. Um, and so from child, from, from being a child, uh, from where I grew up in Gary, Indiana, to understanding a minority in a majority context, and from my elementary to my high school days where I went from Gary to a college prep high school and learning how to navigate uh, the minority majority context or, or what's happening in our culture in America, um, Martin Luther King had much to do with that. I mean, mm-hmm. and the reason I'm pastoring a multi-ethnic church, a multicultural church, I don't think happens without the likes of Martin Luther King and other leaders mm-hmm. uh, around that same time. And even before him, the Frederick Douglasses of the world, the W.E. Du Bois, you, you, you don't have what we have today in our, our multi-ethnic, multicultural church with black, white, Asian Hispanics can sit, sit together and, and worship Jesus without people fighting for those civil mm-hmm. rights, uh, um, folks like myself. So mm-hmm. he, he has much to do with where I am today. Now, one of the things that I'm, I'm always struck by, especially the day after yesterday, is there, there tends to be obviously a ton of buzz. You hop on social media, everyone, everyone's really, it seems to be talking about the same thing. What I, what I'm often kind of puzzled by, and even sometimes frustrated by is like, wow, we had a lot of energy around like a focused idea for a day. And then today we, you know, everyone just kind of moves on, not everyone, but a lot of people tend to kind of just move on, you know, to their regular lives. How how do you help people stay engaged with the conversation? A conversation that I think we know in our heads is really important. Sometimes maybe we lack the discipline and focus to like, keep our, our boots on the ground. That's so true. Um, and sometimes I get frustrated with just a celebrating Martin Luther King Day one day or Black History Month on in February, and that's right. the only time we, we celebrate it. Uh, the reality is, is that uh, we live in America. We live in a, a society where obviously a, a few a couple of weeks ago we saw um, the storm on the Capitol. We've seen right. uh, uh, protests throughout the last year or so, even in a COVID pandemic period. And so there's this, this where every day we're confronted with um, the prejudices and the and the the racism of our world, and especially in America, the divisions that created our country from uh, slavery on to today. And so I, I think that from a pastoral perspective, at least from my perspective, uh, what we try to do is we keep it in front of our people. Uh, it's in the preaching. Same what we do on a day-to-day basis. I, I call it, and because the multi-ethnic church, multicultural church, if I'm truthful, it's sexy to people. You know, it's like, oh yeah, we'll be there. We 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 go to a multi-ethnic church, and that may be the only time uh, throughout the week that you have a diverse setting. And the reality is, is that's not. If that's the only setting that is multi-ethnic or diverse for you, then I, I'm not doing my due diligence mm-hmm. to you as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're, we're called to be uh, Christians, and what is a Christian? Jesus says, well, love me with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your strength, but then love your neighbor as yourself. He says, that's how you love God, love your neighbor. And um, the neighbor in, in that respect is not always a person that looks like you. It's not mm-hmm. always a person that votes like you. They may be Republican, you may be Democrat. They may be black, you may be white. And so how do you love someone that's different than you? Well, you got to keep what's what and what's the die on the hill issue. Well, do we believe in Jesus? What does the gospel uh, call us to do? How do we live out, uh, out in our life? And that means that when we see uh, racial prejudice or um, racism or injustice done in society, whether it's to um, someone who looks like me or doesn't look like me, then I need to stand on that line and say, that's not right. And so, that's not just celebrating Martin Luther King Day and making a whole bunch of posts about all oh, what he did in the past. Well, we're right. still living in a day where 
we need to stand on the lines of injustice and say that's not right. And that 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 black brother right there, he's my brother in Christ. Uh, mm. That white brother, that's my brother in Christ. We were made in the image of God. And so if we're made in the image of God, we need to stand up for each other and look out for the person uh, that has been pushed to the fringes and, right. and the least likely. And we see that all throughout scripture. That's what Jesus yeah. is doing. So I think it just has to be paramount and, and upfront in all that we're preaching that we're talking about, not just on a day-to-day, not on a, a one day a year or a month yeah. uh, of a year, but right. each week it has yeah. to be in your preaching, it has to be in what you're doing. That's great. Yeah. And Derek, when thinking about preaching, I'm sure you hear this from people, but uh, people saying, hey, just preach the gospel. The rest is going to take care of itself. Don't preach race or politics or anything else. I'm sure you've heard that before. How do you answer that question? Yeah, just preaching the gospel is not going to get it. You know, Jesus didn't just preach the gospel. And <laughs> and so it, when you look at I, I love reading uh, the gospels and I love reading Jesus's uh, and how he walked through life. You look at John chapter four, Jesus doesn't just walk through Samaria uh, and just preach the gospel. No, he sits down at the well and he talks to a woman who's not his wife. He talks to a woman who has been ostracized from society. She's of another race where Jews hate Samaritans. And he sits down and he crosses a line and he just starts with a casual conversation. Let's have a drink of water together. Can you give me some water? Hmm. And I think until we, it, it, until we, the gospel calls us and compels us to 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 meet at those lines and when i say lines it's it's our dinner tables it's those sacred spaces that we set up for people to be comfortable in our lives or sit with the people that make us comfortable and the reality is is that the gospel compels us to walk into uncomfortable uncomfortable situations mm-hmm. because that's what jesus did for us he mm-hmm. crosses the line with sinners people that were enemies of the cross myself and white brothers and sisters alike. We're all enemies of God, but he crosses those lines and takes whippings, lashings, and then hangs on the cross for us for things that he didn't do because he loved us. He crosses that line and he calls us to do the same thing. So if I'm just going to preach the gospel, then I could preach the gospel from the comfort of my pulpit and I don't have to do anything right. in terms of <laughs> for your betterment. But yes. if I'm going to live the gospel out, then that means that I have to step outside of the four walls of the church or even my comfort zone to get uncomfortable with you a bit for the good of the gospel and to see your betterment, not mine, but the betterment of all humanity. Yeah, that's so good. Our guest today is Pastor Derek Puckett. He's lead pastor of Renewal Church of Chicago. You can learn more at RenewalChicago.com. Pastor, you were talking about this idea of not just knowing the gospel and not even just preaching the gospel, but actually living the gospel, even and maybe especially when it makes us uncomfortable. Can you talk to us more about that? How do you actually live out the gospel? Definitely. Uh, Thanks for having me again. The the gospel, I mean, in the simplest form is the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And what do you do with good news? You want to share good news. But I I think in, in our world that we've lived in, good news has kind of been catered or cultured, if you want to take, say to certain people groups, you know, so in our world, um, in America, we have to acknowledge the dynamics that have been got us to where we are now. And so mm-hmm. uh, racism and prejudice and things that have been there where, you know, at certain point in time, you had slave owners preaching to uh, black folks that were slaves from the Bible. So the good news, that wasn't necessarily good news mm-hmm. there. But if we if we break down the scriptures and we actually, I think somebody might have talked about it a little bit yesterday, but just really understanding what the word of God says, what do scriptures actually say for ourselves, 
then you start to experience the good news for yourself. But if you have good news, it's like eating a good cheeseburger. You want to tell some other body about it. <laughs> but the reality is, is if you understand the dynamics that we've lived in, that is tough because there's so uh, there's a historical narrative that has stopped that. And so practically speaking, I always tell our people that you got to have a theology of discomfort for gospel good which means that there's going to be a little bit of tension and it's going to be hard sometimes to sit down with someone who's different than you. You might get figuratively smacked a bit or slapped in your face um, because of what's happened throughout the historical narrative of America, which means that going beneath the surface with somebody could feel a little tough because they're going to say some things that rub you the wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a practical way of getting into each other's lives is just, is just inviting somebody over for dinner. Now, I know we're in a COVID space, but hey, you know, there's there's do a FaceTime conversation at right, dinner right. or, or a Zoom conversation. But those intimate spaces, dinner time, um, parties, maybe at your house, backyard barbecues when the summer opens up. Um, one thing we do at our church, we call it Renewal Summer. We do that every year. Uh, where we just go to different neighborhoods in the city because Chicago is very divided. So people don't like to go to different neighborhoods um, on certain sides of the town because they heard something or they didn't grow up there and they don't know about it. Hmm. But we want our people to love the city, which means that you got to love not only the different neighborhoods, but you got to love the people in the neighborhood. Right. So we want to take you someplace that's a little different. Uh, and we're going to have a barbecue on the south side of Chicago or well, we're going to have a barbecue on the north side and you're going to have to congregate with the people and converse with people in that park or that part of the neighborhood or people outside of the church walls that you might not have talked with in this area. Um, and we're intentional about that. So it's, it's the key word is intentionality. It's mm -hmm. you cannot just preach the gospel. There's no intentionality in that. So to say you're just you're, you're preaching, but to intentionally live this thing out means that if I'm going to preach Jesus walking across the line to this Samaritan woman, then I'm going to, and I'm called to be a Christian and live as he did, then that means that I have to live that thing out. So right. there may be hostility there. There's barriers there. Uh, there are people that have said things that are negative about me, maybe even hurt me, that if this is for the good of the gospel, and if I'm a representative of Jesus Christ, then I'm going to cross that line and meet that person on the other side. Now, mm -hmm. I will say that for the minority, and I got to say this, the minority living in a majority cultural world, that's a line that minorities wake up knowing they face every day. Mm -hmm. um, having to cross, I, I wake up, to, I, I know, and my, somebody say, might say, well, I know I'm white too, but I wake up every day knowing I'm a black dude mm -hmm. and I'm living in a world that's not ruled by black people, especially in America. But knowing that from the other side, which I tell my, my majority cultural brothers or my white brothers and sisters, well, how do I enter in the space with um, brothers and sisters like yourself? And I said, well, I think the, the easiest thing is to enter their world and to ask questions and to sit and listen and listen from a perspective of trying to hear the heart and hear where these where folks are coming from. Really try to get to know me. Don't just know my name or say that I got a black friend. Hmm. You know, hang out with me. Invite me over for dinner. Um, come if I invite you. Make sure you show up. You know, uh, let's <laughs> let's go to the places that 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 may rub us uh, uh, a little bit wrong. And you see yeah. that all throughout the scripture. You literally have to put a blindfold over your eyes to not see how Jesus engaged culture and engaged people that were different than him. 
Yeah. Whether that be the Pharisees where he doesn't get along with them or the band of folks he hung with. Fishermen, right. lowest in the society, tax collectors in Matthew, a prostitute, Mary Magdalene. I mean, you can go down the line. Jesus hung with the folks that nobody wanted to hang with. Hmm. And and he crossed lines with them and lives were changed. And, and the world was changed because of what he did. And sadly, I think the narrative of Christianity in America has never, it hasn't been that. We've kind of hmm. been in our own circles instead of these circles crossing one another to see uh, a little bit of heaven on earth, if, as I would want to say. That's mm. good. And, and Derek, you, not only do you pastor a church in Chicago, but as we said earlier, you have a bunch of ministries going on in, in the city. So your your heart is for Chicago. And I would love to just ask you, uh, what is your hope? What are you praying for the city of Chicago right now? Yeah, I'm praying for uh, a church that we've never seen before in a lot of ways. Um, I, we and what I mean by that is our leading the Chicago partnership is a diversity of folks on our board uh, from Charlie Dates to Eric Rivera, Watson Jones, Brian Dye, um, Park Church. We work with Moody Church, Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a, a, a and there's many more that I didn't mention where we're training up leaders. We have 30 guys in our pipeline now to plant, revitalize or um, pastor a church in some neighborhood in Chicago. And wow. And the reality of what we've seen specifically, too, in COVID is these leaders from all different backgrounds coming together, um, working together, whether it be through our initiative to Chicago Delivers, where we gave away millions of dollars in benevolence to people here in the city in need. Um, And so my hope is that we'll see united front in terms of John 17, where Jesus is praying for unity, where the church will come together and show a sense of oneness in a divided city like Chicago, whether that be political lines, racial lines, socioeconomic lines. I want to see the church in a way driving culture instead of following behind culture, Mm -hmm. trying to catch up and saying, no, this is what the church looks like. And this is what we're calling people to look like. This is what we're calling our city to. This is how we're um, seeking the welfare of this city. And and I believe the church should be at the front of that, leading that. And so what I think you're seeing, well, well even when the la- what we did in the last year with Chicago Delivers, we saw legislation change with mm-hmm. um, uh, Instacart accepting now EBT and SNAP benefits from folks. We we, we saw things highlighted where we just said, look, we just want to meet needs in the community. That's all we did. We just said, we want to meet these needs as as the church, not just renewal, but the big C church coming together and meeting these needs. And so my hope is that that doesn't just start and stop in COVID, but right. we continue after this um, and see a diversity of churches, an array of churches coming together, um, leading this city uh, training up other leaders, leaders, planning churches, revitalizing churches for the good of Chicago and ultimately the world because of what happens in Chicago. It trickles through the byways and the highways, the old folks like to say, all throughout this world. Mm-hmm. And so because we're in a major city, we're in a global city. And so that's my hope um, for for the big C church in Chicago. Man, I love that. You're always such a gracious, winsome guest. Thank you for giving sure. us your time today. Would you just take the last 10 seconds or so that we have and let people know where they can learn more about you or your church or anything you're working on. Definitely. Definitely. You can follow me on Instagram at Derek.Puckett uh, or on Twitter is DJ Puckett 22. Uh, our church website is renewalchicago.com. If you want to know more about the Chicago partnership, it's the Chicago partnership.com. And those are the websites. We'd love to know more about you follow us. 
Take care. I love that. Thank you. Our guest today has been Pastor Derek Puckett, lead pastor of Renewal Church of Chicago. Thank you so much for joining us today, brother. Thanks, Derek. Man, it was good to be here. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Mm -hmm. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is here, too. We are excited that you are joining us. It's actually been... um, Almost an unprecedented amount of time since you and I talked about COVID on the show. Maybe because true. yesterday was a Monday and then we actually had the whole weekend. We probably talked about it on Friday, but it feels like, wow, we haven't, we haven't talked about COVID in, in a long time. If you remember when all this was really hitting, at least here in the States in March, first couple of weeks, we're like, ah, sorry to bring it up again. And, you know, <laughs> by April, May, June, I was like, hey, this is going to be every show. Sorry, to some degree. But uh, I wanted to take a little bit of a different angle because I imagine at this point, everyone's got their favorite set of websites or apps or news sources or wherever you're going to to figure out, you know, what's happening with COVID right now. I thought this article was quite interesting. It's from back in November. So some, some aspects of it might be a little bit dated, but the headline reads um, why some people are shaming others for getting COVID-19. I don't know if you experienced or bore witness to any of this, Brian, where this like, it's not just, Oh, you got it. There's like just a ton of, shame associated with it in some capacity. Yeah, because I think as this article is going to say, uh, oftentimes now there's this assumption that if you got it, you did something reckless, you right? And which is right. completely unfair. Uh, but there, okay. there's this idea. Sure. But to assume everybody who got it, it, it did right. something reckless. And, and so this article begins by saying, yeah, you see those pictures on Facebook of people being shamed for going on vacation or not wearing a mask or whatever. But he says they go on to say, Uh, But perhaps the most worrisome form of shaming is the potential criticism people receive when they get a COVID-19 diagnosis. Others may assume that the person with the coronavirus diagnosis must have broken, quote, quote, the rules somehow, that they are clearly careless about social distancing or have little concern for their health or the health of others. Even worse, people attach a stigma to them, viewing them as dirty or unsafe, even long after they've recovered. Mm -hmm. For this reason, some people who are diagnosed with COVID-19 are starting to conceal their diagnosis or delay testing, which is unfortunate and dangerous, uh, a trend with a number of negative consequences. Uh, So where do we go from here? It asks, learn more about the root causes of shaming others are so we can all do our part to stop the spread of COVID-19 while supporting others. And it's just this interesting like you said, it's this interesting thing that's kind of happened over the nine, 10 months we've been at this is uh, people feeling shamed that that they got COVID-19. But then also, you know, people go, well, well you must not be over it yet. Or this kind of it's almost like the Scarlet A go, going like, oh, you've had the COVID. Uh, and so this is really interesting. And it's going to go into why people shame each other and what we could do. But, yeah, it is a it is a fascinating phenomenon, I think, as we continue through this pandemic. Does it does it make sense that if you were someone who had previously seen others in your sphere of influence shamed that if you were diagnosed yes. or there's a possibility that you contracted that you might keep it hidden longer than you normally otherwise would like is there is there some does that make sense to you I guess 
Oh, totally makes sense. If you've yeah. seen other people shamed or you've seen people even after the two weeks and no symptoms or whatever else still not be welcomed back and treated normally, I totally get it. You're like, no, you know, I just have a cold. I'm just at home right now yeah, or something. Right. Uh, yeah, totally understandable. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the reasons they list uh, for why people might be inclined. One, they talk about it being a natural instinct. It's actually a natural instinct to, to scold others in this regard. The second one here is they're motivated by FOMO. So like people who are thinking like, well, it's not fair that you got to go out and have a fun time and then contract mm-hmm. COVID when I've been really diligent and haven't left my house, you know, in six years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next one, and we've talked about this before, there's there's a, a number of rabbit trails we can go down on this one. They feel like an expert, which right. everyone right now is uh, an armchair expert. But this is another one. And we've talked we've talked about this again from a very different perspective, but uh, it says they lack sensitivity. I, I don't know that you have to look very far to see a lack of sensitivity or decorum or kindness. Mm -hmm. And again, you can make a case. I think maybe I could hear someone listening being like, yeah, but isn't there, aren't there times where some kind of like aggressive rebuke is necessary or appropriate? I would say maybe, but probably fewer than we think, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) like, yeah, like someone's about to do immediate harm to someone. I don't know. It's tricky for me because yeah, there, if someone is in, consciously being reckless that's that actually is legitimately dangerous and so what what would you say to the person that's like yep, i see no problem with this i see no problem with shaming someone who is willingly putting other people in danger in fact i'm going to make blanket statements online to shame anyone who might be reading who might happen to fall into one of these categories because that's how strongly i feel about it Yeah, I mean, if you feel that strongly about it and you're ready for the fight because they're going to come back at you, we've all seen this. And I would suggest that social media has not been helpful in this way uh, of people going back and forth. Albeit for me, you know, far be it for me to be like, hey, you can't call other people out who are posting. I refuse to wear a mask or something like that. I personally, my own stance on this is I'm going to deal with the people closest to me. I'm going to have those conversations uh, with the people in my sphere uh, and and rather on, than on social media and engaging down every debate about uh, masks and social distancing in schools and churches and everything else. So I do get it. I get it, especially if you're like, you know what, I'm going to listen to everything. I'm going to uh, dot my I's and cross my T's. And then you see other people on social media uh, living a complete different way. I just I'm not sure social media is a helpful place to do it. And so therefore, I, I wouldn't I have chosen not to go down that path. But uh, I, I can understand it. What, what about yourself? How do you feel about that? I mean, personally, and I think we actually talked about this a little bit either yesterday or Friday. I don't know that shame, even what someone might call uh, justifiable shame, is ever the true motivator we think that it is. Like, I don't think it actually leads to true and lasting change or transformation or even sustainable behavior modification. Like let's, you could take take the spirituality component out of it for a second. I actually don't even think it's the most helpful way forward. And again, mm-hmm. I could be way wrong on this. Like maybe somebody's listening and they're like, actually, I was shamed to stop smoking cigarettes, and it's the best decision I ever made. And I'm glad that someone said a really tough thing to me to actually help me stop this really toxic behavior. So I, yeah, I just, I personally, I don't. I have a hard time really, I mean, I'm not saying I haven't resorted to it, you know, in my more weak moments, but it just doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't seem like it's sustainable or wise ultimately. Yeah. And it's one thing to shame for, and again, I think you and I are on the same page, but 
you know, where, where the article starts here about people, you know, flaunting, not wearing a mask or doing whatever else and then wanting to have a fight about it. But but the people who get COVID-19 that you don't know if they were flaunting it or if they just happen to get sick or whatever, I, that's certainly not helpful. The article closes this way. It says shaming people for a diagnosis doesn't help anyone. In fact, it drives people to stay silent, get their treatment delayed and whatever else. And it goes on to say, instead of blaming or criticizing someone, ask how you can help them. Offer mm-hmm. to run errands or drop off supplies and food. The better we treat our fellow human beings, the more likely we are to come through this pandemic stronger and better than ever. I think that's a that's a very helpful word to end on there. Yeah, I think you're right, man. And as always, I know this is kind of a hot button issue, but we would love to know what you think. This, along with every other article, is posted up on our Facebook page uh, at Common Good Talk. And we would love to know what do you think of the article? Where have you seen some of this at play in your own life? All engagement is fair game. As long as we keep it nice. Let's not bring shaming to the Facebook page. That would be uh, that would be a good aim, I think. Coming up next on The Common Good, we're going to talk about the great unraveling. That's what we're going to tackle next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, The Great Unraveling, and then later we're joined by author Becky Harling. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. At this point, I think you all not only know the drill, but are maybe sick and tired of the drill. So I'll just say we're on the Internet and we <laughs> love to hear from you. Any any of that's fair game. We haven't uh, we haven't gotten any hate mail in a while. Not that I'm suggesting that, but I, I'm starting to feel like maybe we're not maybe we're not rocking the boat enough, Brian. People, mm. people by and large have been like, yeah, good stuff. Is that- All right, the, go- the goal this hour is hate mail. Is that what you're saying? Let's go for it. I'm not <laughs> saying that. I know for a fact, Mr. Uh, People Pleaser, that you're not That's right. that either. I'm <laughs> sweating. I'm sweating say, as I, I say it right I can now. I hear that you're in the fetal position. Somehow, <laughs> in your voice, I just know that you're rocking back and forth. And, uh, yes. <laughs> that, that makes sense. All right. So yeah. here's an article from uh, from Barry Weiss that, I mean, I've never read this blog before. But I, I just saw a number of people, I don't know if you ever choose articles this way, a number of people that I respect or look up to a bunch, all sharing it, saying, this is phenomenal. This mm. is one of the best things I've read in a long time. And I thought, okay, after about four or five of those, I was like, all right, I'll, uh, I'll, give, I'll give it a look. And it did not disappoint. So I don't know anything about this author, but I know that this particular blog I thought was at the very least intriguing it's called the great unraveling the old order is dead what comes next do you want to get us into it brian i do and and this author actually and and i don't remember the 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 actual content of it but wrote a resignation letter at the new york times this year that was one of those things that went viral that shared all around Uh, and i don't remember exactly the content of it but uh She says, thought comes before action, words come before deeds, media that profits from polarization will stoke it. Lies, maybe harmless for the moment, maybe even noble, noble, create a lying world. Hmm. I've known this for a while. It's why I left the New York Times, and it's why, as much as I miss doing journalism, I've been curious at every next step. Hate sells, as the journalist Matt Taibbi has convincingly argued, and as anyone looking at Twitter trending topics over the past few years can see. If Americans are buying rage, here's the here's the question. If Americans are buying rage, is there a real market for something 
that resists it? Just think about that question there. If Americans are buying rage, is there a real market for something that resists it? She says hate sells and hate also connects. Communities can grow quite strong around hatred of difference. And that's exactly what happened to the American left and the American right. It is painful to resist joining a mob when the mob includes most of your friends. It feels good, at least in the short term, uh, to give in. So part of my hesitation about what comes next is that I've been unsure about who will have the strength to stand apart from the various tribes that could give their members such pleasure of belonging. Mm -hmm. It is hard to know how to build things that are immune to these dangerous forces when the number of the people who are or appear to be immune to it uh, is so very small. So let's just pause there. There's so much good there. And and that question is kind of haunting uh, and so important that if, you know, if hate sells, if Americans are buying rage, is there a real market for something that resists it? That's a great question right there. I mean, to to me, the the answer is obvious. The answer is yes, of course. Of course there is. But I think what she gets into is so important and has particular significance for those of us who consider ourselves Christ followers because that notion of belonging mm. is so powerful. And for a lot of us, if you belong to a church community, my guess is that's in your top five. Like, why do you, why do you go where you go? Why is that place home? Oh, man, I just felt like I belonged. I felt like I was home. Mm. I felt like I was I was welcomed. It's also why a lot of people join cults, mm-hmm. uh, extremist groups, mobs, yep. all the same kind of gangs, right? Same gangs. type of the, yep. man, I didn't, I felt like a fish out of water everywhere else except here. I felt like these people know me. These people see me. The difficulty is when the identity, the common thread through which the group that you subscribe to is rage and hate, well, then of, of course, the longer that you're in that current, as long, as long, mm-hmm. the longer you're swimming in those waters, the more normal it's going to become to resort to those types of behaviors. That's what the, that's what everyone else around me, even if they're not physically around you, like if your community is predominantly online, like for a lot of us, it is, you know, that it has the same, maybe an even more potent effect because you're not even reading body language or nuance or nonverbals. Mm-hmm. It's all just, Oh man, if you're not for us, you're against us. And I, I just think, yeah, her premise is like you said, haunting and su- super intriguing. Yeah, I I can think of multiple uh, groups of people in kind of my sphere of people I know, friends, family, online, whatever else it might be, uh, who are who fall into what exactly what she's discussing here. Who they their form their their friendship, their bond, their community with one another has been formed against their common enemy or their common hatred of something or their common passion around something, and it's been really striking. To where I remember asking one of them in particular, and I'll I'll spare the details of like, what do you guys talk about when you're together, like this group of people? And it was like, oh, all we talk about is X. Like it was just this, you know, it was either political or whatever. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, that's all we talk about. It was like, this is our common enemy. You almost even think of like a sports team, right? Like our common bond, no matter what, is to get to that goal of a championship. And it bonds them deeply together. And like you said, whether it be cults or gangs or uh, far left or far right groups like this is what we see going on in our country right now. This is uh, the the polarization that we see going on. And I do think it's really wise to go. And a lot of this is built on the community or the feeling of belonging that we talk about in churches all the time. Yeah. And we talk about 
belonging and community. In fact, you know, many of us put it in our church titles. We believe in it that strongly. And I, I suppose there's probably some truth in dissecting a bit of what we mean when we say community, because I, I think for a long time, at least in the West, I feel like churches in the East do this maybe a little bit better. We, we often assume like, oh, because I gathered at a similar place, a similar address with other people once a week, that's community. And I, I think that's really, really important. Obviously, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that's the full breadth of what Jesus had in mind though, when he talked about building his church, right, or the ecclesia. Mm-hmm. It's it's more than just like, oh, this event that we showed up to, big or small, regardless of what it looks like, it's it's got to be deeper than that. And I think what is haunting, I guess, for me as a pastor, like, man, let's say the average sermon length is what thirty minutes, maybe mm-hmm. that average. Mm-hmm. Yes. 30 minutes a week, plus maybe a one hour small group a week. Compare that to how much media the average congregant is taking in. Like, what do you think is discipling them more? Honestly, you know, like it's, it's naive, I think, to think like, I'm just going to, I'm going to preach all the bad out of them. You're like, oh man, we have, I think we need to rethink community and belonging and discipleship and formation as a whole. If we're to, like the author proposes, in any way counteract a market of rage. That's what I think. Yeah. So what do you think with the last minute we have? What does that look like? As you've rethought it and thought it, what does is, what is building true community look like in the church when you've got all these other forces that we would say are working against us, whether it be social media, whether it be uh, cable news, whatever else it might be? What What are some answers that come to mind for you? Uh, well, the first thing I'll say is that when you consider – how much time Jesus spent with his disciples and he still had a betrayer in his midst and a bunch of people that abandoned him. I'm like, okay, (laughs) Jesus spent like every day with these, with these guys for what, 12 hours a day for three years. And even his crew had gaps. That's um, weirdly encouraging to me, but I think, you know, with the 12 seconds we have left, it looks like living life together. It looks like, yeah, outside of the regular four. And again, in a COVID reality, this all gets way trickier, but, it's serving together. It's praying together. It's breaking bread together. It's watching each other's kids. It's like the, it's all the unremarkable parts. I think those are as formative as anything. And I think we often get hyper obsessed and focused on the next conference or book or module or cohort. And those things are all mm-hmm. great. But I think it's these small, like mundane things that, that are forming is probably even more so. And the company you keep is the person you're becoming, right? Like that's, I think that's true regardless of whether or not you consider yourself to be a spiritual person. And I think that's just really, really important for us to kind of keep at the forefront, especially as we like look to reopen things and head back to like, all right, what's, a, what's this new reality look like? I think for me, that's the thing that I personally am, uh, am super, super challenged and inspired by. But again, that's up on mm-hmm. our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, why parents should stop blaming themselves for how their kids turn out. That's coming up next year in The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, I'm excited to talk about this because I feel like as a pastor, I hear conversations around parenting and more specifically parents who tend to blame themselves for how their kids turned out. And what people probably are aware of is that, you know, I, I pastored for a long time before even becoming a parent. My, my eldest is only three. Mm. So, you know, I, I always try my best to, to shepherd people through those things. But I think now that I've become a dad myself, 
I realized, wow, this is this is way more intense a feeling than I I think I even realized. And so I thought this this article was was pretty fascinating. Why parents should stop blaming themselves for how their kids turn out. What's going on with this article, Brian? Yeah, and again, I think you set that up well because as a parent, I, I know that. I am often surprised by how quickly I take on my kids accomplishments like uh, to puff up my pride or, uh, you know, if they do something wrong, how it kind of reflects on me. I think this is something that all of us as parents really deal with. And so uh, this article written by oh I sh- the name Yuko Manakata, why parents should stop blaming themselves for how their kids turn out. It says a few years ago. A student came up to me after the second day of my class on parenting and child development. She hesitated for a second, and then she confessed, I'm really interested in this material, but I was hoping that your class would help me become a better parent if I have kids someday. She had jumped to the conclusion that the class wouldn't help her because I told the students that I was going to cover how parents do not have control in shaping who their children become. I was caught off guard. Would confronting the science of parenting and child development not be relevant to being a good parent? I hope that my class ended up changing her mind. See, parents want what's best for their children, whether they're young or old, rich or poor, married or divorced. Shelves of parenting books promise to show people how to address the difficult decisions that parents face every day and how to achieve the best outcomes. Whether they're about tiger parenting or free range parenting, parenting like the Dutch Dutch, or parenting like the Germans, these parenting uh, books share one consistent message. If your child isn't succeeding, you're doing something wrong. She's about to jump into science here and about whether that's true or not. But uh, A, Ian, I, when you, you guys just like you said, recently had your first kids. Uh, isn't it so true that there's all these books out there that become overwhelming, but kind of the underlying message is, is uh, you're going to completely shape this child and therefore how they do is a complete reflection upon you. Yeah, it's tricky, too, because, you know, I grew up in this huge family and we're homeschooled and I thought my parents did a really good job of helping us not care all that much what people thought of us in like a healthy way not like in a you know flipping over cars and setting buildings on fire kind of way but like a a healthy a healthy sense of you know autonomy and critical thing. I've, I've just always been grateful for that so i think preparing for parenthood i thought yeah i'm not going to give into all that i've heard stories of the the crushing pressure of you know measuring your kids versus everybody else and all that i i thought i thought that i'd be better at resisting it to be honest mm-hmm. and I am. I immediately rounded a corner, and it was like even little tiny things, like oh my gosh, he's three days late to when he's supposed to be sitting up. And people <laughs> yes. are like, "You need to calm down, man. He's twelve minutes old." Like, just, you know what I mean? Like, just I don't know if it's like my competitive nature or if it's the comparison trap or like I just immediately felt, and to this day still do. And what's what's really embarrassing and pretty shameful, and I probably shouldn't even admit it on the radio. It's not even always just. Oh man, I'm blaming myself for how my kids are turning out. Sometimes I can be really critical, you know, because it's like, oh, when I'm not around, they're not being shown these right things or whatever. So uh, it's somebody else that's not pouring. That's why they're lashing out right now or not. You know, it's like, oh, that's so ugly and and unhelpful. But I like, I I get it. And I've certainly felt. I mean, man, mine are only two and three, and I'm already feeling some of that, some of that crushing weight. I I'm sure I'm not the only one. And you know, your your kids are a bit older, so you're probably 
immune to this at this point, right? Wait till your kid scores his first goal in, in like a kindergarten <laughs> soccer league and you just look around with this puffed out chest going, yeah, look at me. Not like, look at my kid. <laughs> you're just like, right. or when right. the report cards come and you're like, oh, sure. you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm proud of my, you know, say my daughter for getting all A's, but it's also like, ah, look at me. I have a daughter with all A's. Well, that that's right. great until they don't have all A's or they don't uh-huh. score the goal till they're that, you know, that kid on the soccer field who's picking the dandelions instead of kicking the ball. And, and then you're like, Oh, what have I done wrong? And, and man, that's a pressure. This article goes on to say, uh, you might ask, what about all the successful parents who have successful children or the struggling parents who have struggling children? And she says, they seem to show the power of parenting, but children are shaped by many forces that they grow up with and that are often intertwined forces like genes, peers and culture. This makes it hard to know which force influence, which forces influence who children uh, become. And it goes on to say, I, I, I think there's a couple of really important things in here. Ian, first of all, uh, we have to take the pressure off of our parenting to says the ultimate goal for me is to make my kids good and successful and look good as a reflection of me. Obviously, as parents, we have an enormous influence on how our children turn out, right? As little kids and yeah, as adults. Obviously. But but it's not on us to make sure that they do X, Y. And in fact, when we put that pressure on our kids to be a good reflection of us, that's oftentimes where the rebelling happens, right? Like think about uh-huh. the parenting of uh, the pastor kid stories we've heard all through the ages about the inevitable pastor's kid who goes off track. And how's the story always go? Well, mom and dad kind of made, made me, gave me the impression I have to be perfect. I have to be the good pastor's kid and away I went. It's also when we put this pressure upon our kids that they're they're likely to rebel against this because they're not made to to take this pressure of reflecting mom and dad well so that their friends think highly of mom and dad. Yeah, and I, I like what they how they conclude because there's a there's a bunch of really fascinating science in here that correspond. I'm reading a, a a leadership book right now on the on the brain science of of leadership and culture and I it's so interesting to me the parallels between that book and this article. But some of what they they kind of conclude with this, like, all right, so what do we do with all these findings? First, know that parents do matter. Second, know that how parents matter is complex and difficult to predict, which I think is really important. Third, appreciate how powerful your moments with them can be because Mm -hmm. of what they mean for you and your child right now, not because of what they mean for your child long-term, which you cannot know. As someone who is like only thinking in sort of the long-term space right now, that's super encouraging. Like they're my wife who is, you know, just brilliant beyond measure. And she's got degrees in this stuff and just has spent so much boots on the t- boots on the ground time um, thinking through things developmentally early on. I would make really unhelpful comments like, ah, it's not like they're forming memories yet. And she's like, <laughs> even if they're not forming memories though, it's still shaping them to some degree. And you might not ever really see how, so be mindful of what you're doing. I thought, Oh man, great point. But what this article is also going on to say is like, man, there's other, like you were saying, other forces at play that maybe can offer us a chance to breathe easier a little bit. Maybe it's like still be present, still be responsible, still do the hard work of parenting, but also <sighs> breathe a little bit. Give yourself some grace with parenting. I don't know if you have a, a final word or what that you would you would want to give to parents. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, as we realize also that, you know, it's not 
necessarily if I do this perfectly, then my kid will be perfect. If I'm, you know, taking that pressure away, it also drives us to pray for our kids because if we're going to win, I can't control everything and and make them exactly, a, you know, as, as we start to realize I don't have that ultimate control, I do think it needs to pu- uh, push us to be people who pray for our children uh, because uh, that's one of the most powerful things we can do for them. So, so parent them well, love your kids well, spend time with your kids. You matter in a huge amount of ways, uh, but also allow this to drive you to prayer for them. That is a good word, my man. And in the biz, we call what I'm about to do a segue because coming up next, back on the show, author Becky Harling is going to talk about her book, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to have back on the show author Becky Harling. Welcome back, friend. Hey, it's great to be back with you guys. As I told you before, you're a lot of fun to be on the show with. (laughs) Thanks for saying that on the record so our audience can hear (laughs) someone someone other than our moms giving us encouragement. I appreciate it. Would you just take take a minute or two and uh, reintroduce yourself to our audience? Sure. So I'm Becky Harling. I'm an author and speaker. I'm married to Steve Harling. We have four adult kids and they're all married to wonderful people. And the best part about me is that I have 14 grandkids mm, and whoa. they are rock stars. <laughs> I, I'm uh, My kids are kind of teenager and a little younger. And every time I hear people describe grandkids, I'm like, I can't wait for those. <laughs> I know, seriously. I told my kids right up front once they had kids, you know, guys, you're now the B team. The there grand you go. Team are the A team. There you go. Well, well, Becky, we want to have you on. We uh, for a couple different reasons. One, Ian and I were just discussing this article, uh, and we asked you to, to give it a read, and then you could give us kind of your wisdom into it. it. Talks about why parents should stop blaming themselves for how their kids turn out, and I totally get that as a parent right now. Uh, understanding, I have such a huge influence in my kids' life. Uh, maybe the greatest influence on my kid's life, yet I can't control how they turn out. How would you kind of counsel somebody who's uh, blaming themselves, say, as this article talks about, for their kids maybe not turning out the way that they hoped they would? You know, here's the thing. God was the perfect parent and his kids sure screwed up in the garden. (laughs) And so there's that, you know, (laughs) I I think um, parents cannot control their children. And I think that that is a big myth that parents believe, you know, you have that beautiful baby and you think I am going to shape and mold this child. And certainly that's true, but God often uses that child to shape and mold you. And Hmm. I think it's good for parents to remember that too. Hmm. So there's a a theme in a lot of your writing. A couple of years ago, you wrote a book, uh, how to listen. So people will talk. And then most recently, how to listen. So your kids will talk. And then just last year, Listen well, lead better. Uh, people probably see where I'm going with this. Listening feels like a theme that you you are really interested in. I, I just came across a Paul Tillich quote where he said, Our, the first duty of love is to listen. And I, that just struck me as so profound. But I'd love to hear from you. Why why is listening something that you not just care about like as a topic, but you care enough about to, to write multiple books about? Well, I think there's two things. First of all, I was born to talk. And so I really needed to learn to listen. So oftentimes authors write to their deepest need, you know, and in this book, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk, 
I'm very, very honest in the book about times where I blew it as a parent, mistakes I made, you know, how I really had to learn to listen in parenting because the way my kids talked to me when they were little would determine how much they talked to me as adults. And Mm. so I really wanted to put the effort into that so that we would have a good relationship when they were adults. Yeah. Uh, So people who listen to the show know Ian's got two kids, like ages two and three, and my kids are, you know, like 17 and 13 and 11. So very different stages of life. What does intentional listening look like at different stages when your kids are really small, like Ian's kids, kind of teenage years like mine, when they're adults like your children? How does it change? And maybe what are some similarities? Well, I would say, you know, the the book opens when one of my daughters was uh, three years old and she just, Steph just was a teeny tiny child with big blue eyes who had opinions on everything. (laughs) I remember one week I thought, I, I just got down on my knees before the Lord and was like, Lord, I am totally messing up this child. She's going to mm. need a lifetime of therapy. And what the Lord spoke to me was, Becky, you've got to give her a voice. And I, that sounded so weird to me because I was like, Lord, I'm pretty sure she's got a voice. And he was like, yeah, but I want you to strengthen her voice, not silence it. Mm. And that was a wake up call for me. And so from the time Steph was little, I began to see seek ways to really empower her voice. That meant giving her permission to argue with us, to field test her ideas. I There's a story in the book when she's 12, where she wanted a TV in her room. And I had just gotten home from a speaking event. I was too tired to argue. A TV in the room just went against everything Steve and I believed. And hmm. so we said, go up on the computer and write us a proposal for why you think you need this. And it's got to have good paragraph structure. Good and she worked on it for two hours, right? Wow. She came down and gave it to us. And Steve looked at me and he said, Beth, this is good. (laughs) So we we gave in to her and we gave her a black and white TV that worked on two channels in her room. She felt like she won and she needed to win. And Mm. so you really have to know your child. You have to know their strengths and their weaknesses. You have to really listen to understand them and to empathize with what they're feeling so that you're building that relationship. It's all about connection. Mm. See, I think I was 18 when I discovered there was more than two channels, actually. That was, that was a, a late a late bloomer in that regard. Okay, so so Becky, you also have another book that, to me, as I'm reading the title, just feels so timely, Psalms for the Anxious Heart. I know that so many people feel anxious right now, maybe more so than ever after the kind of year that we've had. I don't have to list all the reasons. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you chose to write a book about an anxious heart? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you're right. There's anxiety in the air. I mean, you can actually feel it. Our kids are anxious. Um, You know, everybody's anxious right now. And for me personally, for a lot of years, I struggled with almost debilitating anxiety. You Mm -hmm. know, um, I would worry about something and that worry would spin off into another worry. And soon Mm -hmm. I had a whole you know, a pile of worries that were uncontrollable for me. And I, I really had to learn how to put some tools in place to manage that anxiety. And so one of the tools that I discovered was learning the power of praising God. And the best place to do that is in the Psalms. And I love the Psalmist because they're so 
authentic, right? I mean, David writes in Psalm 3, break their teeth, oh God. I mean, you can't get any more authentic than that. Yeah, right. (laughs) And so I just felt like in this COVID season, people needed a tool. So the book includes a psalm, a devotional, a prayer prompt, and a song for people to listen to because worship music has played a huge part in my healing journey. Mm. And Becky, we love having you on. Maybe with the last minute or so we have here, just speak to that as we talk about parenting, that parent right now who just feel frazzled, feels like they're not doing as good a job as they can, feels like everyone else is a better parent than them. Could you speak just a word of encouragement to that uh, mom or dad out there right now? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, every parent I know feels that way. And that's the way Satan targets parents. Mm -hmm. And so go back to the Lord because he's cheering for you. He's on your side and he wants you to have a great relationship with your child. That's such a good word. Again, you can learn more at BeckyHarling.com. That's BeckyHarling.com. The most recent book, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. But I highly recommend you check out all of her books. Becky, thank you so much for being such a generous, gracious guest. You're always so fun to have on. Hey, it's a blast to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Becky. It's our pleasure. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And Brian Fromm, before we went live, just said to me, do whatever you want, Ian. I am ready for it. So, Brian, (laughs) real quickly, what is your favorite number? Uh, My favorite number is five. Okay, favorite color? Green. Favorite breakfast food? Uh, lately, it's been oatmeal. Oh, <laughs> oh well, well, sorry. I should go Egg McMuffin, but I most commonly have oatmeal, but I'm going to go Egg McMuffin. <laughs> egg McMuffin. Does that go well with your Matlock? What is it? What are you doing? What is... <laughs> That's not nice. I go That's with Murder, nice. She Wrote. <laughs> of course. Of course you do. Who's your favorite athlete of all time? My favorite athlete of all time, the first one that comes to mind from growing up is uh, is uh, Dwight Gooden from the Mets. Oh, yeah. All right. So here's a question that it has nothing to do with loyalty. Who do you think is the greatest athlete of all time? And I'm saying athlete specifically because that's a huge canopy. Who's the greatest athlete oh, of all time? That is such a difficult it's an impossible one question. Because I think Michael Jordan is the most accomplished sports figure. But I, if you're going just athlete – I would go between two of them. I think I would argue between Jim Brown and Bo Jackson. See, I was going to say Bo Jackson. Yeah, I think I think you could. I think you can make a. Uh, I think you can make a definite case for him. Yes. Does Does Deion Sanders, for the same reason Bo Jackson, even uh, contend in yes, your opinion? I do. He does. I think, so. I think so. I mean, the guy played in an NFL game and a World Series game on the same day. <laughs> so. I mean, that's unreal. That's unreal, right? Yes, Just yes. in terms of pure athleticism. And it's Jim, funny that we didn't we yeah. didn't mention like Olympians though. Like that's interesting, Good isn't point. it? Good point. Jim Brown. Most a lot of people think the greatest running back of all time was also uh, possibly the greatest lacrosse player of all time. So right. you start adding these multiple sports. Uh, that's right. I think Michael Jordan is the most accomplished athlete of all time uh, in mm-hmm. his sport. But yeah, Bo Jackson. Okay. Little known fact: he lives locally, and my son's baseball team practices in the Bo Jackson Athletic Dome in Bensonville. So Stop. the Bo I Dome. I didn't know that. Yes, yes. <laughs> the Bo Dome. I didn't. Okay, it is called right. the Bo Dome. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to pronounce it Bodome just to <laughs> just to frustrate somebody. Okay, uh, you did request holidays. I don't have a bunch. But I like giving props to uh, our Orthodox brothers and sisters. It is Orthodox Epiphany today. So mm. happy 
Hopefully you don't experience the same kind of epiphany we did. Um, Good point. <laughs> said t- too soon. Um, you'll be also happy to know, Brian, it's National Popcorn Day. Mm, of course, the one day that my the, the first day of the last week, my family hasn't made microwave popcorn while I'm doing the show. Of well, today. Probably giving your microwave a break after all that oatmeal. That's probably what's going on there. <laughs> I, had, I had microwaved oatmeal this morning. <laughs> of course. <laughs> all right. Last but not least, it is World Quark Day. Quark, like Q-U-A-R-K? Yeah, yes. I don't know what that is. It's like a... It's a it's a particle, isn't it? Of some kind? Sounds like it. It's a... It's got to be subatomic, I think. I'm going to look this up while you continue. Okay, all right. Do we have any time left for anything else? (laughs) We burned a lot of time in that segment. Okay, so one of the things that I've been trying to do to end the show, rather than just you know hit you with more news or something I, i'm trying to think of the last segment of the day as a bit of a benediction maybe kind mm-hmm. of a blessing some way to kind of send you on the rest of your day whether you're listening to this in the morning or a drive home or whatever it is to kind of think through like all right what's what sort of the the way the tone that we want to end the show with in light of everything else we've we've tackled and talked about so you'll know brian at this point, I'm I'm really I guess I'm maybe more so in a season, but I've for a long time really cared about rest and Sabbath, even though I'm pretty terrible at both. And so I, I found this article uh, pretty fascinating. It says from sickness to Sabbath, embracing rest. Do you want to get us into it? Uh, absolutely. The author talks about in the beginning about uh, feeling terribly ill and being sick, being covid free, but being sick and needing to just rest. Uh, Hmm. for several months. Uh, And she goes on to say, during my time of rest, I turned to scripture. Genesis tells us that God rested on the seventh day of the creation story. For many of us, we've likely heard the story countless numbers of times. Personally, I've taught it in Sunday school, she says. Perhaps hearing these stories so many times may lend to a loss of potency. But when I felt extremely ill, I found myself rediscovering God in a radical way. God, the creator of all things, omnipotent, omnipresent, took time to rest. The image of a God who is all around us resting seems like an oxymoron. Sabbath or Shabbat in Judaism's day of rest is Judaism's day of rest on the seventh day of the week, Saturday. Shabbat comes from the Hebrew word uh, Shabbat, which is often translated as rest. However, the more accurate definition would actually be ceasing and ceasing from work. Uh, the observance is about refraining from work activities and doing restful activities. It is festive as Jews are free from the regular work of day-to-day life. And it is a day to contemplate the spiritual aspects of life and spend time with family. I'll pause there for a sec. Uh, you and I talk often about Sabbath and how a lot of us are really bad at it. And we're kind of happy like the Bible says, oh, it's no longer a law. But when you read the, def- the definition of it and the background of it, you're going, I want that. Like, I want to be free from this. I want to have that sort of freedom. I want to have that sort of engagement. And it's really important for us to be reminded that uh, that Sabbath is a gift given to us and not a burden. Well, something, too, that's interesting, because on my uh, my memories on Facebook today, mm-hmm. uh, a clip from a sermon I gave, I guess at this time last year, popped up. And I don't know if you ever do this. Or ever feel like convicted by the very thing that you wrote and or said. <laughs> yes. One of the lines that I used then was uh, what you cannot rest from. You are a slave to. I saw that. Yeah. And it, it just hit me square between the eye. Like it does it for, for some of us. It might not be work, 
it might be something different, but we all can probably identify something that we, oh, we just can't rest from. It might be your phones, might be social media, maybe accomplishment, maybe work, might be TV, could be, you know, these, a lot of these things are good things, but the idea of like, oh, I don't want to be enslaved to any of that. So yeah, when you talk about sometimes, you know, in our hubris, we're like, oh, that's uh, Old Testament law and I'm above that law now. You're like, no, gee, gee, I mean, Jesus's invitation for the weary and heavy laden to to find rest in him. That's a, that's an invitation more than a law. Like it's, I mean, I've heard people even make the case that like the Sabbath command in Exodus is like the command that all the other nine kind of hinge on. Like, I just, I think we really have missed so much of the life and richness that's found in Sabbath and rest. And we've sort of patted ourselves on the back. Like, I don't have to pay attention to that anymore because of the gospel. And you're like, <laughs> is that a, it's like the, like, it feels like workaholism is like the one addiction we all openly brag about. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like the thing like we brag about how busy our schedules are and how exhausted we are. And I'm like, oh, I don't I don't know that that's necessarily what we're built for, you know? Yeah, it's your old saying that that I've stolen from you that we're not spirit, <laughs> uh, we're not human doings, we're human beings. And I think we yeah, function right. oppositely of that. Like what I can accomplish, what I can produce is what defines me. It's not who God says I am. It's it's that's that's how I'm going to get accolades. That's how I'm going to get self-esteem by what I can produce. And if that's true, then you shouldn't rest. You should keep trying to produce. And so mm. a lot of this goes back to who am I and what is my identity? She ends the article by saying, even God rested. And if we are created in the image of God, we then also need to rest. So what's one takeaway, man? If, if there are people out there going, I struggle with this, I can't do it. Is it just try to turn your phone off for an hour? Is it read more about this? What would be one helpful tip you'd give to people who struggle with this? Yeah, I would definitely recommend um, like taking a deep dive into establishing a rule of life. You can go to the commonrule.org. That guy, he wrote a, a book that won a bunch of awards. That's been really helpful for me. And then I think, yeah, the the one hour a day is good, um, but a full day a week is better. Like it's, it's not as bad difficult as you might think like committing and i think accountability is a big part of this too so whether or not you have a family like hey for 24 hours who who will commit with me to just rest to just sabbath and it's not it's not just a day off it's actually a day engaged it's like what stirs my affections for god what things or hobbies or things i just i haven't made time for because of what life work stuff kind of gets in the way and i think that's a really really important it's a reminder for me and i think one of the things that's really it's been a helpful phrase is that we don't rest from work. We work from rest. We begin first with a, from a posture of rest, like Adam and Eve, their first full day was after a day of rest. You know, it's like, that's such a, a gift, I think to us to remember that. And so as we, as we wrap up today and knowing that, man, it's been a crazy week, a crazy year, and there's probably craziness still ahead of us, but like God is still on the throne. Rest is still an invitation that we can all participate in. And if you've never done it, never taken it seriously, I cannot encourage you enough to really grapple with that idea. What you cannot rest from, you are a slave to knowing that God doesn't want us to be enslaved to any of that. So that's the word that we will end with today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.